4: Hey, you're in the right spot. Welcome back to another edition of the Book of Joe podcast. It's me, Tom Verducci, with Joe Madden. And Joe, we just got back from a wonderful weekend in Savannah, Georgia, at the Savannah Book Fair to sell some of our book, The Book of Joe, and to meet a bunch of really cool, very nice people. What'd you think of that trip to Savannah,
5: Joe? Yeah, that's, that's uh, really interesting. I had a blast just like you did. Um, didn't know what to expect going into it. First of all, the city, Savannah. Oh, beautiful. Totally smitten, man. I mean, the, we, we, did, we did a presentation in, uh, the I think it was the Ascension Lutheran Church, an old church in the middle of uh, Savannah. So <laughs> Tommy and I, like two priests are on the altar, facing the congregation. Yeah, you did a nice job (laughs) watching your language. By the way, I appreciate that. That's it. I I really backed off a couple times, and (laughs) but the first thing I brought up, I was asking if there are there any realtors in the audience. I mean, that place is super, super cool, and I can't wait to go back with a little more time. Golfing, uh, golfed up in Hilton Head with my buddy Mike Live for a couple days, his wife Janie, and and just had an absolute blast. Uh, So anyway, yeah, it was a great experience, well organized. Met a ton of. Really cool people. So if we get a chance to do it again, absolutely, we do it again.
4: Yeah, highly recommended. That was my first trip there as well. Just kind of blown away by the vibe and the atmosphere there. It's almost like you're on an old Hollywood movie set and um, you walk everywhere. I found out that they call everything a square. Like we're asking for directions and it was always, well, you go through two squares or it's three squares away. And apparently, I guess as the city was growing, Joe, and people were dying, they would buy, bury them in graveyards in squares. Wow. And then as the city kept getting bigger, they had to keep pushing the limits of the square. So the city grew. So there's all kinds of ghost tours there. And um, it's like kind of like going back in time. But if you're thirsty, there's plenty of places to get a cold beverage. We found
5: that <laughs> I can out. Tell too, you, yeah. that. you will not go thirsty <laughs> or hungry in Savannah, Georgia. I mean, we saw so many uh, little private tours. Like, even after you had left, I went to a private reception that night, and coming back, I mean, like, it's cold, it's late, and there's little tours going on in front of cemeteries or buildings or churches. Really an incredibly uh, unique and very interesting experience. Yeah, and Southern hospitality, for sure, they live Mm -hmm. up to that reputation.
4: So that brings us to our our topic this week, talking about kind of a, a blend of the old and the new. Baseball has been in a precarious position where it's, it's losing some appeal, especially to younger fans. So this year, the game is going to look more different than it has since, well, I, I think you have to go back to at least the start of the DH in 1973 to find the last time baseball went through kind of massive changes that they are this year. Three big rule changes. In brief, no more shifts, no more defensive shifts. The bases are bigger, three inches wider across, which means the distance between first and second, for instance, is four and a half inches shorter. And there is now officially a clock in baseball. Baseball prefers you call it a pitch timer. But players are literally on the clock now, like the play clock in the NFL, the shot clock in basketball, to move the game along. I am a huge proponent of these changes And, uh, we'll get into why. And Joe, my gut feeling is you're a guy who, who he's not a big fan of regulations, right? Like being told what to do and putting boundaries on people and ideas. And this maybe I'm speaking for you and I'll let you speak for yourself. Of course, Uh, maybe this strikes you as something that reaches a little too far. How about that?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. That's who I am. I grew up in the sixties and the seventies. It's in the book of Joe. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, um, uh, but I will say this, I do like the pitch timer. I think that was, for me, that was the one rule that could have been the first rule or change uh, that it came uh, came down the pike a couple years ago uh, as opposed to like pre-batter minimum, uh, you know, the ghost run and all this other kind of stuff. I think this one makes the most sense to me. Uh, actually, I played with the clock way back in the day when I was in Wichita, Kansas in 19, I think it was 80. There was a clock in the... Uh, um, National Baseball Congress World Series in Wichita. And it didn't bother anybody at that time. But uh when I uh with the Cubs not making the playoffs for so the first time came home watching a playoff game on TV. Wow. Took forever. Interminable was the word that I that brought to uh, came to my mind. So yeah, I like the idea of getting the ball, throwing the ball. I mean, I talk about Bobaloo, my mentor in the book of Joe. I mean Babalu used to get so upset when a pitcher would take too long or a guy would not get in a batter's box. He would just start yelling out from the side. I mean, in an instructional league game in Arizona with nobody around. So I like that. I like the the guy getting the ball, getting on the rubber, battering the box. I think it's going to create um, – there's, there's not all that ne- uh, necessary time for strategy. Strategy, and it's actually a point of overthinking. So get the ball, throw the ball, hit it, get in the box, be ready to swing the bat. I like all of that, and I think there's going to be a positive reaction with the pace of the game. And I've never been concerned about the length of the game.
4: That's a great point. I'm glad you pointed that out. It really is about the pace of the game. It's not the time of the game. Now, when they put the pitch clock in the minor leagues last year, the average minor league game was reduced by about 25 minutes. You're not going to see the same kind of cut in the major leagues. The clock is actually a second longer with runners and without runners. Um, and there's more commercial time built into a major league game, especially a national broadcast, but you may be talking about as much as 20 minutes being cut off a game that makes a big difference. More than that is exactly what you said, Joe, the the pace of action, the ball in play, I call it a state of readiness. If you, as a fan in the ballpark, or especially at home, when there are other distractions to pull you away from the game. See everybody's body language completely go inert. They just stop, right? They walk off the back of the mound. They walk out of the batter's box. The head goes down. They're staring at the space. What are you doing? You're changing the channel. You're looking at your screen, an iPad, whatever it might be, you lose interest. When the game is played in a heightened state of readiness, like the way soccer is, like the way basketball and the NFL is, then you are more engaged as a fan. So, I I love the fact that the game will be played at a faster pace. And I actually think I agree with your mentor, Baba Lou. If I'm a pitcher, man, I think this helps me. I want to dictate pace if I'm on the mound. The more I control pace um, and, and almost force a hitter to think quickly rather than slowly. That, to me, Joe, seems to advantage the
5: pitcher. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, a part of this uh, slowness that, that evolved was like in the early 80s to the mid-80s when mental skills started to come on board. And a lot of what you see uh, with this this time in between is uh, possibly routines that have been developed uh, through the utilization of mental skills coaches. Uh, you know, your breath, when things aren't going right to have a happy spot on an outfield fancer like Evan Longoria. We look at the top of the left field foul pole. That was all from Kenny Ravizza. Um Hitters, uh, I mean, pitchers... I had, again, uh, uh, guards that don't get on the rubber unless you're ready to. uh, Long go, get out of the box until you're ready to. So all that stuff uh, conspired to add time to the pitch or to the at-bat. So part of it's our own fault regarding all of that with the mental skills. So now mental skills has got to develop um, another method, a quicker method. And, again, that's counterintuitive to what we've uh, been teaching to this point because you do want to take your time. Never be in a hurry. Get your breath you control the action, you control the pace. So that's, I, I, I really believe that that's been part of the problem or the issue in a sense, but I, although I'm a really big uh, proponent of mental skills. So I'm curious to see how this uh, enacts as we move it forward. Um, I like the idea of a pitcher not overthinking it. I like the, the idea of a hitter not overthinking it, but I agree. I mean, from a pitcher's perspective, um, I think um, get it and throw it, it's just like on a on a golf tee, see it and hit it. I mean, we get to this point where we have too much time in between. Football, you don't. As a football player, as a quarterback, after that first hit, it was almost like we're just talking right now. You didn't think about anything. Basketball, if you want to argue with the referee, he gives you the ball, you have to put it in play. In baseball, we have all these pauses that you have a chance to overthink it. So I'm curious with all of that. uh, No chance to overthink it now with the pitcher, and obviously the same with the hitter. Uh, But I I do – there's a lot to like about this, but again – um, these guys are still going to want to have a routine that they're going to have to expedite a bit. And I'm curious to see how that evolves.
4: Yeah. It's interesting. If you remember when we had Anthony Rizzo on the podcast, he talked about when he facing guys in September who just came up for the minor leagues, who've been pitching with the clock, he felt rushed at the plate, his own kind of routine to get himself ready had to be quickened And made him a little bit uncomfortable. Now spring training games are starting this weekend. The games will be played under the new set of rules, Uh, You have teams right now practicing and taking batting practice with clocks on the field. Everybody is getting their routines readjusted. Will it happen in the course of spring training? No, it still is going to bleed into the regular season. You're going to have a lot of veteran players in April, especially complaining about it. Uh, You'll have guys maybe even punched out by an umpire because the hitter took too long to get in the box. That the penalty is a strike on the batter or a ball on the pitcher. It's going to happen, folks, and guys are going to complain. But you know what? It's just part of the adjustment period. After about two, three, four weeks, they'll be good. They'll move on. It will not be an issue. But I'm telling you, just be prepared for a lot of complaining.
5: Yes, yeah, no different than when they brought in the instant replay stuff and uh, the result would come back and I would look at the board and you would see the board and you know, okay, absolutely they have to go in this direction. And they come back in another direction based on uh, against what you had thought. Based on the uh, scrutiny from New York, and I, there's, you're not supposed to argue right there because these umpires on the field have nothing to do with this call. But I knew that I knew that, but I'm still going to argue, and I'm still going to get kicked out be- because you still have to make a point. So I think, like just like you're talking about, even though everybody knows these are the rules, there's still a lot of uh, purists that are not going to like it. Uh, eventually, the the uh, it, it will be we we'll get to the point where everybody does kind of morph into it and understands it and does it uh, more seamlessly. But in the beginning. Uh, if somebody gets punched out, man, on a, on a time clock, uh, God, I don't even know what I would do in the dugout. I swear to God. And and then again, you, ha- you have to you have to understand. I mean, do you was the was the clock right? Was the guy too quick? I mean, you're, you're going to try to you know parcel this down uh, to like really some minute uh, moments or situations. It's going to be tough. And so you're right. It's going to it's going to happen. It'll take some time, but there's still going to be arguments, and there's still going to be. I, It's like anything else, uh, unintended consequences. As you move this further along, some of the things that seem really obvious and good to us right now are going to be challenged.
4: Yes. Uh, Let me give our listeners a quick summation of how we got here and why it's necessary. If you go back to the highest attended season in baseball history, that's 2007. That's the apex of attendance. Since then, Major League Baseball games, on average, have gotten 12 minutes longer with six fewer balls put into play. What does that mean? That means baseball lost 15 million fans in those 15 years as they gave people less action over more time. That is the absolute worst kind of formula that any entertainment industry could have, especially in this day as the options are just exponentially greater in terms of where you can get your, your fun from, right? So you have to give people more action over less time that's what this is designed to do. Now people have said, why don't you just leave the game alone? The game self-corrects over time. And generally that has been true. It wasn't going to change folks. Players were getting slower and slower. And Joe, you're right about the mental skills part of it. I will throw in also the information. There is more information that's processed in real time during a game than there ever has been. That is not going back to 1950s or 1960s baseball, which, was basically your version of what you call American Legion baseball, Joe, just show up and play. Right. And and we're getting closer. not getting ever get back there, but we're getting closer to that kind of baseball. The game decided by the players and their athleticism
5: uh, and not algorithms. Yeah. I mean, there's still going to be this glut of information that's going to be thrown out there prior to the game. And I'll argue, even though it's been that way, when the game begins, man, it's, it's hard to uh, really utilize all that. I mean, I, I had that little sheet in my back pocket. I knew what I wanted to do before the game began. It was you had to like I would have to possibly check in a couple times during the game of something that I really wasn't certain of, but for the most part, by the time that game began, you should know exactly what you want to do catcher to pitcher, pitcher to catcher, hitter before he got into the batters box, manager before the inning you got to know what you're going to do before the inning begins uh several hitters in advance so I mean, I I think a little bit of this has been overblown with the information being so impactful during the game. It's really impactful in regards to how you set up the game before it occurs. And then it's going to be organizationally uh, contingent. It's the group that really wants um, their manager to serve more as a middle manager is going to have to really be there with almost like a cheat sheet during the course of the game to make sure you stay with script. And there's others that are going to – like. I would like to believe I was this guy that I would get all this information I would want it but then by the time the game began, it's more read and react kind of a situation because nothing rare is rare that anything goes according to script or theory uh, because they're in reality most of the time are two different things so uh, the information overload is there it's not going to go away as long as it stays before the game um, I don't think it'll be uh, it's going to really be oppressive during a game but like you're saying and I agree with that less time to really process all this stuff is actually a good thing. And maybe they're going to have to reduce, reduce, reduce even more prior to the game, less cheat sheets during the game. Let's go play some baseball. I think everybody would love that. Hey, speaking of
4: pitch timers, I'm up against one right here. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask one of the early adopters with the shift, what he thinks of the shift now being banned.
6: with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash bookofjoe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com bookofjoe.
2: Do you love Selena? Like, really love?
6: Whether you saw her
2: live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano.
7: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hey, welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. Joe Madden was, listen, he wasn't there with the Boudreaux shift. Lou Boudreaux on Ted Williams or back in the 1920s with Cy Williams of the Phillies, but in the modern shift era, he was right there at the beginning, first with the Angels, then with the Rays. You're talking about shifting at Ken Griffey Jr., talking four-man outfields. Um, those days are over. That sort of ingenuity now has been legislated out of the game, and I could see why someone like Joe was would be against it. Right, uh, I'm for it. Um, but again, Joe, I want to hear your perspective on someone who was right there at the beginning of this. And now you're being told you can't do it.
5: Yeah. I, again, it's just, it's the game of baseball and it should be like wide open to do whatever you want to do based on strategical advantages that you see. And you have to have kind of like the balls to do it. I mean, some people, especially in the beginning, uh, we were made fun of with the race. Um, the fact that we did all these weird things on defense, and you had to answer a lot of questions and a lot of people's you're trying to reinvent the wheel, all this different kind of stuff that was being said in six, seven, eight, whenever those first couple of years were. And now all of a sudden, they, then it becomes mainstream. And now you have to actually legislate against it. It's become it's gone so far to the other side. My my take has always been this. And I, I'm, I'm a believer in this. And that you're right. I don't like legislation. I don't think that um, uh, you really uh, to to change anything always requires somebody having to sit down and think that I have a better way of doing this. I prefer that – I would have preferred that the players handled it themselves and even organizations, meaning when I get it, we're going to get young Tom Barducci in my minor league system. Strong left-handed hitter out of Seton Hall Prep in New Jersey. This guy's a pull hitter. He's got some pop. But I know that if I don't give him other weapons in the minor leagues that eventually he's going to be subject to this method of play where there's going to be an extra guy on this side of the infield. I need to teach him how to stay inside the ball, drive the ball to the other side, or just bunt for a hit when it when a situation uh, presents itself based on the defense in front of him. I don't think enough time was n- not nearly enough time was spent on that. I know that uh, for a fact. So that's that's what it comes down to for me um, is that I don't think the industry has spent enough time nurturing uh, opposite field bunting. You try to get it done um, after the fact. I mean, Schwerber tried to do it. Anthony's kind of done it in a, in a good way. And there's others that have not been successful doing it. So I just, I, from my perspective, I like to see those things done from a teaching perspective, teach them how to hit the ball the other way, how to stay inside the ball, how to bunt, prevent this team from putting the other guy on the other side of the infield. Uh, so you still have an advantage in that moment. But then again, it comes down to compensation and what organizations want. They want home runs. So, If you want, there's Tommy Verducci and he's, yeah, he's got all this power. And if we teach him this, then he's going to subtract from his home runs. I don't really care if he strikes out. I just, he's got a decent eye. He's going to accept the walk. So there's all this um, different kind of input being uh, instilled and installed into the game and into Tom and into this, this method of thinking Um, convoluted answer, but that I I really would prefer, would have preferred that we had done a better job of teaching minor league left-handed hitters to utilize the whole field, and actually to the point, if you, if you really wanted to get that done, compensate. I mean, exactly. I mean, if you get so many extra uh, base hits on that side versus the shift or if you get a bunt for a hit, you know, different things like that, it's always going to come down to how you compensate for it, and the players will evolve and react.
4: Well, I agree with that. You know, the carrot was not out there for the guys to play that kind of offensive baseball you're talking about because they they knew they could hit 213 and hit 46 home runs like a Kyle Schwerber, and you will get paid very well. So that was part of the problem. But I actually think you have to give pitchers more credit, Joe. I mean, Mm -hmm. what happened, I saw, was teams now began to pitch into the shifts. For instance, in the last five years, cut fastballs from right-handers to left-handers went up 50%. Now, if you're a left-handed hitter, and that ball's cutting in on your hands – at 91, 92, 93 miles an hour. You are not carving that pitch to left field. I'm sorry. It's not happening. You've got to get the barrel out front. You have to pull that pitch. The only place you can land that ball in a shift is basically on the grass next to the foul line in right field. That's it. So now you can be rewarded for hitting a ground ball through the hole between first and second the way it was for 100 years. I like the fact that that is going to come back, that you don't now have to have hitters trained to hit the ball in the air because there's just no grass out there to get a line drive or or ground ball through the right side if you're a left-handed hitter. I love that, and I think you'll see hitters respond to that. It's like, whoa, I just got a base hit. I didn't actually square it up, but it got through the infield. I'm feeling good about myself. Joe, you know what it's like when you're on base, even if a bloop lands there, you know, that does wonders for your mental capacity and uh, not to mention your batting average. So I I think the incentive here will start showing up as the season goes on that, hey, you don't have to launch everything,
5: guys. Well, I do believe, I mean, your your logic is outstanding. The point though is also that a good cutter on a left-handed hitter, is still going to be defended against, even with only one guy on that side of the field. Because if, if the pitcher's got good enough command in and he's going to elicit that soft of a contact, if you have a decent first and second baseman, you're still going to cover the area the majority of the time the ball's going to be hit, which would be more to the pull side, more soft uh, from where, uh, straight up second base to the first base hole to the first baseman, and it's still not going to be hit hard. And that's the thing about defenses. Defenses get bigger. Through uh, lack of hard contact, defenses get smaller when the ball is hit hard. So I can't disagree with your logic. I, it, it, it is true. The cutter is hard to carve the other way, no question. But I, I just can't concede the fact that because uh, there's one less guy on that side of the field, then the cutter is still going to be thrown. I'm curious. And we'll, you know, we'll, this will be borne out over the course of the year. But I don't necessarily believe that there's going to be that dramatic of an increase in Knox versus the cutter in based on how defenses are played, just because that's where the ball is going to be hit and it's going to be hit softly. And and, and just, could I just jump into another point right here? Because what you're talking about, um, see, this is this is where the defensive second baseman is going to become even more prominent. Um, I don't even know if it's going to get to the point, just say you have a right-handed starting pitcher with a good cutter against a predominantly left-handed lineup, right? Is that when you play your, your better defensive second baseman? Because there's going to be more lefties the ball's going to be on their hands. I want the guy with the range especially to his left. And I could set things. And, and I, to the point, I mean, I don't even know if it's going to get to the point where you want a left-handed first baseman just to cover that home more stringently. So there, these are the kind of things that I'm curious about. Then you play your your offensive right-handed second baseman when you have a left-handed starter. You know, these are the – is this going to become part of the nuance of moving it forward? 100% I agree with that. I, I think there's a premium on range at second base now
4: mm-hmm. like never before. Right. You're out there on an island now at second base. You can't, as the Reds did, sign Mike Moustakas, right. a third baseman, right. and say, go play second base. You can't do that. Those guys will not have a place in the game. Let me give you uh, two stars in this game Sure, as an example of how the game has changed. I'm going to start with Corey Seager, mm-hmm. huge star in the game, right? Mm-hmm. When he was a rookie in 2016, they shifted against him only 11% of the time. That was probably when he was playing against your team. (laughs) Because they didn't shift a whole lot back then. It wasn't that long ago, 2016, but 11% of the time. When he pulled the ball, put the ball in play, he hit 333. Now let's fast forward to last year. Corey Seager saw a shift 93% of the time. And when he pulled the ball in play, he hit 239. He lost basically 100 points. The same player hitting the ball the same way, and the total number of hits to the pole side basically the same. And he lost almost 100 points on his batting average. The other one you know very well, Shohei Ohtani, mm-hmm. right? You saw people routinely shift on Shohei Otani. Now, his power is great the other way, but when he hits the ball to the pole side, when he hits it 100 miles an hour or more, and that's smoked, folks. Hitting a ball more than 100 miles an hour. You squared it up. He was more likely to be out than safe. He made more than 30 outs to infielders in a shift, hitting the ball 100 miles an hour plus. What other sport would tell LeBron James, we're going to defend you with some funky kind of defense and let it happen, or with Tom Brady, we're going to make sure the defensive backs can basically tackle the receivers five yards from the line of scrimmage. They wouldn't. Why is baseball putting governors, which is what these shifts do, on the stars of the game? We want these guys to shine. I want to see Shohei Otani hit a bullet to right field and be a base hit and not have a second baseman 200 feet from a home plate throwing him out at first base. How about that?
5: So I could argue, I mean, I, I could accept the, the fact uh, the triangle because I started the triangle with Benji gilt with the angels back in 2002, we were up in um, Toronto and we just, I just wanted to put that out there and I had him out in right field and Toronto on that turf because of Delgado. And I'm hitting him bullets from, I don't, I, I think I was uh, on the first base side during batting practice. I just wanted to get out there, Benji. I wanted Benji because he had the better arm, the stronger arm you want out there, the guy that's more reliable. So uh, that is the, that's what you're talking about. I would, Probably um, I could be uh, talked into making sure that the guy can't get out deep in the triangle because I think that's a lot of where the outs are at. Uh, Number one. Number two, um, I'll argue plate discipline. Corey Seager. um, Once I figured him out last year before I left, don't throw him a strike. I mean, the biggest thing this guy's got to do for me is recreate his plate discipline because what I saw a lot, and that, that was after that, I walked him that time with the bases loaded. We walked him. After that, I figured it out. I said, no, no, no. No more of that. We're just not going to throw him a strike. So you challenge guys like that to swing at anything. And if you do, you know, they're going to grab you once because you can't always uh, put the ball exactly where you want to. But a guy like Seeger, just don't throw him a strike. Just challenge his plate discipline. Challenge him outside the zone. You're going to elicit a lot of weak contact. He's going to grab one once in a while. But for the most part, if you have a pitcher that has great command, you could control that at bat. So – that's secret. That's what I saw last year. Shohei, you're right, and I, I would. I would um, concede that you'd have to stay on the dirt for the reasons you just talked about, but I still would not legislate against the shift.
4: Oh, you haven't convinced me yet, but uh, it was
5: a good argument. Pretty good. Thank, thank uh, we're you. We're going to take Appreciate a break it.
4: here <laughs> and come right back and uh, and dive a little bit more into the rules. And is the stolen base actually coming back to baseball? Stick around.
8: I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you
4: get your podcast. Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. Joe, sometimes I've said this for years. I look at a baseball game the last few years, and it looks like the library, the Firestone Library at Princeton. Everybody's reading. The catcher's got scouting report on his wristband. He's reading. The guy's in the dugout looking at iPads, and they're looking at video. The pitcher's got a scouting report in his back pocket. There used to be sign sequences before pitchcom. that he's reading. And the fielders are out there pulling a, a card out of their back pocket, and they're reading. Come on, guys. Let, let's play like we're back in the schoolyard. Let's let athleticism take over. A quick story for you. I love telling this story. 1978, game 163, Lou Pinella robs Freddie Lynn in that great <clears throat> tiebreaker game at Fenway Park. Guidry is pitching, and Pinella is shaded towards the right field line against Freddie Lynn, and he makes a game-saving catch. It's probably a two-run double if he's not where he was. Fred Lynn was astounded by it, called it the biggest play in the game, and after the game, he said that guy was lucky to make that catch. Well, I asked Pinella about it. He said, you know what? Guidry was pitching on short rest for the first time. I saw early in the game he didn't have his A-plus fastball. Guys were starting to turn on it a little bit. So I shaded him towards the right field line. That's a ball player. That's a ball player reacting to what he's seeing. We have removed that kind of thought from players because now they have a laminated card in their back pocket that tells them where to play. Uh, and the specifications that go into the positioning is amazing. I worry actually a little bit about the Dodgers because they're better than anybody. And you know this, Joe, from Tampa. Andrew Friedman is a whiz when it comes to defensive positioning. Whatever systems he uses works. They were the best in Tampa. They're the best in L.A. The Dodgers lose that competitive edge this year. I mean, they'll still be a very good team. Don't get me wrong. Uh, But I like the fact now it's more about players deciding the game than the analytics
5: department. Anytime you tell people what to do, you're going to lose their imagination. You're going to lose their ability to think on their own. And I think that's a lot of what we're talking about right now is that ball players today are uh, not encouraged to think on their own coaches today are not encouraged to think on their own analytics provides a safety net for decision making. So if you, if you continually follow the data and numbers and it doesn't work, everybody's okay with that. It's no different than going for a first down and fourth down all the time. In the NFL, and it's no different than the three-point shot that's really taken over the uh, uh, NBA. So, if the analytics provides a safety net for decision making, so if it doesn't work, it's okay because the the large sample size told us to do it. But I'm here to tell you, as a coach manager, I really if you're if you're my hitting coach or pitching coach, whatever, I'm staying out of your way because the moment I keep telling you what to do or I keep interfering with your process with your players, I'm really losing uh, you. Uh, I'm losing everything that I hired you for, all the inner intelligence that you might have, your experience, your wisdom, because I don't want it. I don't want it. So anytime you were constantly telling people what to do, you're definitely losing their imagination um, and like I said the years of experience and wisdom, et cetera. So that's, that's what I see has been going on, and that's what really concerns me about all this. Um, and that's it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I give Theo Epstein a ton of
4: credit here because he has really been one of the driving forces at Major League Baseball as an advisor to the commissioner's office on these rule changes that do put the game more back into the hands of the players themselves or at least the people in uniform. Um, and right. he has flat-out admitted, listen, we went basically too far with analytics when it comes to the aesthetics of the game. Mm-hmm. That, And, of course, we wrote about this a lot in the book of Joe – That analytics, a great evaluation tool, became a way to decide how the game should be played, the style of the game, the script of a game, the dictation of the game. For instance, analytics don't really love stolen bases. If you think everybody is going to hit a home run, there's no real reward for stealing a bag and moving up 90 feet, right? And the worst thing is you get thrown out. You take a a runner off the bases – when you think everybody's hitting a home run. That's the way analytics works, right? Well, now that we have these bigger bases and the distance now four and a half inches shorter, there's a limit on pickoff throws. You can only pick twice over to first base now. So we should see an increase in both the percentage of the success rate and the attempts of stolen bases. And if that's the case, it it went up a little bit in the minors. I got to tell you, it wasn't a huge jump. But hopefully there is a noticeable jump, and there's this uh, we've returned to the days when a guy's on first base, and the thought that he might run puts energy into the
5: ballpark. How about that, Joe? Blessing of the front offices. That's what it comes down to. Um, if, if the front office is on board with that, um, and they give it uh, the blessing to the manager, to the coaches, to the player, go ahead and run, it'll happen. If they don't, it won't. Because what happens is when guys get thrown out, and the out is given up on the bases. That's, you know, there's venial sins and mortal sins in the Catholic Church. I think that's considered a mortal sin uh, when you get thrown out on the bases because you get that kind of reaction after the game. So there's going to have to be like a tempered method among front offices. Or there's got to be a buy-in from them that truly we're, we're, this is like a more of an altruistic moment where we're trying to make the game better. And if this happens to us or our team, uh, so be it. Uh, we're going to, we're just, we're just trying to make this game more enjoyable, but also think it's discounted and it's not thought about enough. When you do that, when you have action on the bases, listen, I'm a base running freak. Uh, I was always the base running coach in all the teams I played on uh, or, or coached with. But if you permit all this to occur, the splitting of concentration is not given enough credit. I'm talking about from the pitching perspective, when he has to split his concentration to holding a runner and at the same time, trying to get out a good hitter in a hot moment, Hey, you're going to run into some mistakes because of that, but nobody – you can't evaluate that. that there's, no, there's no equation out there that's going to evaluate that, but I'll tell you what. Uh, talk to some really good pitchers um, when he gets into the situation and say they're really not proficient at holding the runners on or they're really slow to the plate. That really can absolutely split their concentration to the point where your hitter is going to benefit – uh, or you're gonna you're gonna get a rush throw from the catcher, and the, all of a sudden the runner's gonna be on third base. There's, these are the kind of factors that aren't even talked about that always have bothered me. So the, it's the it's the unspoken uh, part of this. It's the subtlety of it. it's the layered effect of all this that's not spoken about that can really conclude and 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 help your team become successful. Last point: I was just at a gig in Joliet, Illinois, uh, Cardinal Country and, and Cubs Country, and um, Eddie Spezio was there, Scotty's dad. He played on the 64 World Series Cardinals. Lou Brock gets traded there from the Cubs and Lou Brock gets to the Cardinals and he's not running that much because he was told not to do that much running when he's with the Cubbies. But he gets there and I don't know if it was Johnny Keene or whoever calls him and say, listen, or it might have been those the players. I don't even know if it was Shannon whoever. Hey, Lou, you came here for a reason. Get out there and start running and create havoc. And that became a hallmark of, that, of him and of that team for years, what Whitey did in the 80s. So th- th- you just can't, you just can't, Reduce it to the point that you get thrown out, and it's a bad move. You go into you go into team meetings prior to a series, man, and you got a team that's going to apply pressure. I promise you, it causes confusion and chaos on the defense and among the pitchers. When I was with the Rays in, in two thousand eight, we go to the World Series. Ask people what they felt about that team between the action on the bases. We even stole home plate a couple times with Carl and um, and BJ. And about the safety squeeze, all these things. A conspire to help you to make you a more difficult team to defend. And I'll argue that point with anybody.
4: Yeah, I love that. It's a great point. Um, it's one of the subtle things that maybe a fan wouldn't recognize, but I, I guarantee you spring training camps, there's pitchers really having to learn, relearn how to defend the running game, especially yep. with the limit on pickoffs and what, what happened in the minor leagues with the pitch timer is that pitchers learn that you better come set quickly. You don't want to wait to come set when that pitch timer is starting to run down because then it's like that third-down rusher, uh, defensive end in the NFL, who can see the play clock going down to one. You just take off. You don't have to wait for a snap counter to see the ball move. Uh, And that's for a base runner. You know, you you almost have to – Keep an eye on the clock if the guy's going to hold it that long. But you better come set early, and you better hold those that second pickoff throw in your pocket just so you have the threat of that. So there's a lot of strategy that goes on with this, but the bottom line, Joe, is I think it's going to be more exciting. The threat of the stolen base will come back. And hopefully that means we're talking about defensive second baseman with range and guys you can run. Hopefully it also means we're going to get – Better athletes in the game that's be a premium now on drafting and developing guys who can do more than just,
5: you know, swing upward to try to lift the ball up in the air to hit the ball out of the park. In, I never thought about what you just said about the quicker uh, coming set times. That's really interesting. That's a part of the unintended consequences. I also believe you may see more pitchouts all of a sudden because of this. Uh, pitchouts may take the place of the throwover uh, under these circumstances. And I think uh, if I'm running, like, say, a, a four game series, right? I'm going to make sure I do that in the first game of a four-game series. I want to make sure the other team sees me do that. When I manage in the Texas League, there would be five- and six-game series. So if we're going to work against a team that's going to run a lot, I want to make sure that they knew I'm willing to pitch out in, in that first game of the series so it could impact them not going later in the series. And furthermore, if you got a guy with good command like Kyle Hendricks, I used to tell Kyle this all the time, brother, if I want to pitch out on a 2-1 count, was that going to bum you out? Is that going to bother you? So if you could start pitching out on counts – That are typically protected counts where uh, runners feel very safe, and you do that a couple times, that also will plant the seed of doubt. So, these are the kind of things you're going to have to, you're going to probably see or should see this year. And again, last point, I think you're going to see better deliveries. I like quicker, quick step to the plate. I think quick step to the plate, arm is up and out sooner. You're going to see better delivery without loss of stuff. Uh, good point. And I'll add one more thing,
4: a uh, re-emphasis on catcher's throwing ability. A yes. catcher can pick any mm-hmm. time, as many times as he wants on those back picks. Uh, mm-hmm. But with more stolen base attempts, I think he will get those stolen base attempts. You're going to need somebody who can throw the ball accurately and strongly. Correct. So add it up for me, Joe. And as I said on the air, I haven't looked forward to a baseball season this much since they invented nachos and those plastic helmets you could take home. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah. I really think this is getting this, a little closer back to uh, probably the best baseball that was played in the 1980s, I would say. Mm-hmm. It was the most diverse game when it comes to styles of play. Uh, the most athletic game. We didn't have strikeouts over a 20% uh, rate back then. So I think you may see more balls in play. And, hey, if you're going to a game on a school night, early in the season or late in the season, you can take your kids knowing you'll be out of there at a decent hour. How about that?
5: Well, you just you just brought up the decade that I learned my craft, the 80s. I'm definitely uh, a kind of a millennial baseball mind because it was the 80s that I really was formed as a coach and a manager and a scout, and I cannot disagree. Maybe that's where my influence, not maybe, that's where my influence comes from. I do believe that that was a really, and I know it was an extremely entertaining period within the game of baseball, and I felt very fortunate to be part of it yeah the World Series ratings were
4: uh, you know out of they were just really out of control. Yeah. um I know the world was different then in terms of options, um but Hollywood was cranking out a baseball movie. It seemed like every month that that was a real heyday for the game yeah uh, speaking of which um a producer Vince wanted to know like we haven't talked about rock and roll for a while oh, so w- what do you got playing these days? Have you discover rediscovering anything from uh, your beautiful decade of the eighties or
5: prior? Um, it, musically speaking. Wow. I, um, I can't say I've rediscovered. I mean, I, um, you know what I, like I was talking about my, um, horrific experience flying home from Savannah the other day. Oh yes, yeah, uh, beautiful yeah, trip you had. Yeah. What, what I needed was, uh, some solace on the airplane in be, the interlude there to settle down, deep breathing, uh, reassign big dude in front of me, pushing back on his seat with literally, I don't know, three or four inches, uh, room to spare, so I went right. Boy, you needed like Enya on your, on your uh, well, iPod. Next best thing, next best thing, Linda Ronstadt. Okay. I'm such a Linda Ronstadt freak. And so I just sat there and I kept listening to Linda Ronstadt. She settled me down. This is a lady I've been wanting to meet, but of course she's been ill and I, uh, you know, could not happen. I thought this might be the time when I got out back with the angels. But Linda Ronstadt to me is one of the, the best voices ever. And there's nothing that she did that I can't listen to, whether it's her. Spanish music, uh, and of course, even some of her operatic music, and of course, all the stuff back from the Stone Ponies and stuff. Uh, this girl uh, gets me in the right mood all the time. So, more recently, uh, when you're when you're a little bit stressed out, for me, just pop some Lindon on on whatever, and some good. It's got to be some good sound too. Uh, one of the best voices ever. I believe.
4: Yeah. Good call. And when you mentioned Linda Ronstadt, I immediately thought of Tim McCarver, the late, great Tim McCarver. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, He was a master of wordplay, sometime cornball humor. I get Mm -hmm. it, but it it would put a smile on your face anyway. And he always had this line. If a a guy was late on a fastball, he's that was a Linda Ronstadt fastball
5: blew by you. That was the big part of the (laughs) 1970s in in the, in the minor league as a catcher. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, it's uh, this was fun. We're going to revisit these rule
4: changes, Joe. I I mean going in like you said, there we think we know what we like and what we don't like and then there's always unintended consequences. So we will revisit that once baseball gets underway, but I'm pumped about it. And um hopefully you've got something to take us out here, Joe.
5: I do. First of all, it's too bad Joe West isn't around to interpret all this stuff. And number two, <laughs> um you know I was going through a couple different things and I settled on one of my favorites, Mark Twain. And I think this is um, kind of applies to my overarching philosophy of life. Uh, And it comes down to whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. Amen. Oh, I love that.
4: I love that. And he's one of my favorites. That's a great call. Look forward to the next time, Joe. Thanks. Thanks, brother. Nice job. Appreciate it. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through.